to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski. Uh, today, we're going to have an interesting um, podcast because what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to the very first paper, the very first paper I ever published, ever wrote in this industry. Boy, this is like 16 years ago. But I still think that the paper makes a lot of sense and I want to walk you by this. The title of the paper, For Lethal and Preventable Defense Mistakes in Civil Litigation. I mean, there's a lot of mistakes that happen in civil litigation. And I think the ones that were made before are still being made. should probably upgrade this paper. Let's see what I said 16 years ago and let's see if it still makes sense today. So for lethal and preventable mistakes in civil litigation. Number one, we've talked about this so many times because it's so important. Making witness prep your last priority. Always a killer. Always a killer. Um, I wrote this paper before the plaintiff reptile theory came out, right? Before those clowns. Um, it was still true then, but now it's especially true. Uh, the plaintiff's bar has really uh, evolved, become far more aggressive. Uh, they've always communicated well. And uh, they continue to communicate well. And their top priority in discovery is really, um, really taking down your key witnesses, you know, whether it be a, a corporate rep, uh, a PMK, a safety director, trucking your driver, any other fact witnesses, that increases value to the case that, that improves their, their leverage at mediation. And so... Um, you prevent these bad depositions from happening. You have effective depositions really uh, economically um, improves your uh, strategy for the case to try to resolve it. Bad depths are going to cost you a lot of money. The other thing, and again, of course, you know, getting phone calls recently, this is making me nuts. When you're prepping for trial and you start prepping your witnesses the week before trial, that's, that's very, very bad. For trial, trial testimony takes a while. Uh, it's a completely different animal than deposition testimony. Um, our training program is different. We have a trial training program because there's so much more you have to do in front of a jury because you have all the jury perception, jury behavior things that oftentimes don't exist uh, during deposition. And when you're doing this stuff last minute, okay, if it's your last priority, you're working on all these other things. Um, the quality of the prep goes down, number one. But number two, if you find a problem with one of your witnesses, you have no time to fix it. Also, the week before trial, that's where everybody's anxiety is through the roof, right? Everybody's working 20-hour days. Uh, all the attorney, the, the, the legal team, right? Hair on fire. Um, everybody's bumping into each other. Not a good thing. So Debt prep, do early. Obviously, we preach that almost every week here on the Litigation Psychology Podcast. But your trial prep, man, at least start start six weeks before trial, okay? Doesn't have to, don't have to be long meetings, but start kind of piggybacking these meetings and building a lot of document review. I mean, exhibits, trial themes. There's a lot of things to go over with these witnesses. And we, we haven't even talked about the stuff I do which is all the cognitive, emotional, behavioral stuff on top of that, which is really what's going to make you break your, you know, your witness uh, in the courtroom. Now we have a bunch of trials that have been going here lately. And so um, getting back into pro 
you know, proactivity versus reactivity. Um, yeah, I know a lot of these cases settle, but you can't rely on that. You have to assume that you're going, you're going to trial, get these witnesses prepped early. So what you're doing the week before trial, you're honing. Okay. You're tweaking. That's it. You don't want to be doing a lot of heavy lifting that week before trial. Cause there's so many, you know, you're writing motions and eliminate, you don't have time to really be spending the time with the witnesses that you need. So from 16 years ago, I still think that's true. Do not make witness prep your last priority. Actually, I think you need to make it your top priority is where I would go with that. All right, that's number one. It's kind of interesting to go back and read these papers. Number two, a weak visual presentation of your case. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on a recent mock trial where the one group of attorneys had a really superior visual presentation. Look at who your jurors are, okay? These people, the only thing they're doing all day is looking at computers and phones with fancy graphics, okay, and, 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 and images. And I know some of you attorneys are like, well, hey, I'm old school. Um, eh, you gotta be really, really careful with that. <clears throat> um, I think if, the, if your adversary, if the plaintiff attorney invests the time, uh, the money, and the effort into putting up a, a really strong visual presentation in yours is weak, the, the jurors are gonna give more value to what's more attractive. That's just what it is. And so that's another reason why we do so many focus groups and mock trials is to test your visuals. Visuals are really, really important. Everybody on this planet right now is a visual learner. So the more visuals, um, and, and the, the stronger visuals that you can use um, can be very persuasive to the jury. Now, the reason why you want to test these things out with mock jury research is do you have something that's too advanced, that's not understandable by the jury, that you need to, you need to um, make a little bit more simple? Uh, do you have something that's too simple and it needs to be more advanced? Right. We talked uh, the other day about, you know, how many bullet points are you put in per slide? What colors are you using? Are you over the well? Are you overwhelming the jury cognitively with too much information per slide? These are really important things that I think a lot of defense counsel don't think about and um, they don't realize that they can really overwhelm the jury or you can underwhelm the jury. So regardless, it's very important to put on a strong uh, visual presentation. Um, and most courtrooms, you know, a lot of courtrooms are high tech now. A lot of courtrooms are high tech. Uh, a lot of courtrooms have actual computer, computer or TV monitors in the jury box. You got to use that stuff. Again, if your adversary is using it um, and you're not, they look more organized. They look more advanced. And here, here's the kicker they're going to understand and retain the information better, okay, than a more elementary, okay, um, uh, presentation. So there's a balancing act there, but, you know, find yourself, uh, if you have an in-house graphics and AV person, uh, work, you know, work with them, or if you hire somebody from an outside consulting firm, really important that you put together a really professional, but also really understandable uh, visual presentation. You know, uh, do a lot of transportation litigation. You got things like accident reconstruction uh, types of graphics and animations that your experts are helping making. That's 
fantastic stuff. But remember, you could also do that wrong. You could do that in a way that the jury never understands it. And so again, doing that stuff, putting it up to the jury, uh, the mock jury, uh, and seeing, you know, is, is this effective? What do we need to change here? Is it too advanced? Is it too simple? Do we need to change the color scheme? Um, and then in the presentation of the accident, uh, say reconstruction uh, animation or any animation, um, what's the speed of it? Does it go too fast? Are you doing things in slow motion? Okay. Are you using things like dash cam video, right? Are you using, are you doing that in real time and then following up, you know, kind of super slow-mo to walk the jury through all kinds of little tricks that you can use. And again, what you're trying to doing is you want to capture and maintain the attention of the jurors. Number one, number two, you, you want to have them retain the information that they're seeing. Number three, you want to outmaneuver your adversary. Okay, you want the better show, you want the better show, because the better show will get more credibility with the jury. So make sure that um, you're, you're working with the right people, the right experts to put these things together for you, because visual presentation is absolutely key. And as, as the jury pool keeps changing, it's only going to become more important. If you are old school, well, you, you, well, you better wake up. You better wake up um, because the old school methods will not work anymore. And you're going to look like you didn't put enough time or effort into your presentation and the jury will use that against you. That's like the last thing we want. <clears throat> All right. Number two, let's keep going. Number three, over-reliance on expert witnesses. Now, expert witnesses play a huge role in many types of uh, cases, things like, you know, particularly, you know, product liability. However, in a lot of industries, the experts on both sides are really good. And um, they oftentimes cancel each other out. But I would say that um, putting all your eggs in that basket and the expert witness, jurors, I mean, we interview thousands of jurors uh, after mock trials, after real trials, unless there's a huge difference between the experts as far as the quality of the testimony. Most of the time, the juror just shrugs because expert A says one thing, expert B says, oh, I completely disagree. They both have great credentials. <laughs> They're both really good on the stand. And the jury just shrugs and says, okay, um, that's a wash and they move on. And so that's why um, you know, back to the back to the you know corporate rep testimony, fact witness testimony. That's really where you're going to get the most bang um, for the buck. Now, I'm not saying don't spend the money on the experts. You certainly need the money on the experts because you have to at least match what the other side's going to do. But that's really where you see the experts really play a huge role in jury decision making. Is when you have one expert that's really good, maybe one, you know. That, that, that maybe doesn't have a lot of testimony experience, uh, that can come back to bite you. I also think, and what I'm seeing a lot more of is uh, expert witnesses, um, they need training. <laughs> I don't know why they call them expert witnesses because they're not expert witnesses in most cases. They're experts in their field, but many of them um, don't have the actual testimony experience or the type of training that I provide uh, to really learn how to persuade a jury. Now you have some industries where, yeah, you've got 
the big time experts and they've testified 100, 150 times before. Okay, I get that. But I think those are few and far between. I think there's a lot of expert witnesses out there, particularly new ones that um, may not have the skill set um, regarding, again, cognition, behavior, emotional control, communication, jury communication skills. So we actually do a lot of work with um, expert witnesses and not just on cases. We have expert witnesses that call us and say, hey, I, want, I don't have a case pending right now. I haven't been retained, but I want to be a better witness. I want to, I want to learn about jury behavior. I want to learn about, you know, where do I look? Do I, you know, how much eye contact do I make with the jury? So when you get your witness, your expert witness, don't just look at their background, but see, you know, how many times have they testified? Um, have they testified you know, effectively? What has been the outcome? <clears throat> also, and this is a big deal in a lot of these cases, uh, and juries pick up on this, uh, is your experts, is your expert, um, I hate to use this. I'm not going to use the word. You know the word I'm talking about, but an expert that only does defense work or only does plaintiff work, there's a certain term that's used, which I'm not going to use, but you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> meaning they're sellouts, right? They are sellouts. They're just, you know, they're just, they, just, they have sold out to one side and that's all they do. You have an expert witness that's done some sort of, it doesn't have to be 50-50, but they've testified for both sides before. It actually brings a lot of credibility, I think, um, and jurors appreciate that. Uh, I think that's where plaintiffs make mistakes. Plaintiff attorneys make mistakes as they go out and they get the plaintiff expert that only does plaintiff work. And it's, it's an easy cross-examination by defense counsel, right? Right. Yeah. You've testified a hundred times before and 99 of them have been for the plaintiff. How come you haven't done any defense work? And then it, it it's, it's pretty obvious to the jury uh, what's going on. So not just looking at the credentials, but looking at, you know, who, who have they testified for, right? How many times and do they have a balance now? Again, it's never going to be 50-50, but if it was 75-25 in favor of the defense, at least you have the 25% um, to work with. So again, experts are important. They're not going to win or lose cases for you generally. That's, that's generally what I see um, with some very, um, you know, m m many uh, unique uh, exceptions doesn't happen very often. So experts are important, but let's not over rely on them. All right, plowing straight ahead to number four that I'm going to go on my rant. My rant is great today. Uh, going on the defensive early. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but I came up with it, came up with this 16 years ago, the availability bias. Let's cover this again. So one of the main mistakes defense counsel makes is that they start their opening statement by defending their client as opposed to attacking. And there's plenty of targets to attack. You can attack the plaintiff, depending on the case. You can attack an empty chair defendant. You can attack a co-defendant. And importantly, you can attack alternative causation. The rule being in the first minute of that opening, you have to give the jurors something or someone else to blame. But when you come out of the box and you start doing the company commercial and, you know, you do the, you know, remember the, the, we didn't do it. We're a good company. We didn't do it. We're not responsible defense. That's going to get you clobbered. 
you'll get your ass handed to you that way. So you got to come out. And so availability bias. And what that means is the party that's most available, i.e. the party that's being talked about the most, is the most available to blame by the jury. That's why it's called availability bias. Okay. And so in a defense opening statement, I know this sounds odd to many attorneys. You don't want to talk about your client too much. Okay. And when you do, you're going to kind of sprinkle it in the middle, but not the beginning or not the end. The very first thing you got to do is get that, that spotlight of blame. And now remember plaintiff's counsel just sat down after just blaming you and your client for everything for the last 30 to 45 minutes <laughs> you have to take that spotlight and shift it right back to them or again empty chair co-defendant alternative causation or maybe even a combination <laughs> but you got to do that coming out of the box if you come out of the box again talking about your client defending conduct it's awful okay jurors don't like that okay you don't want to be the star of the show <laughs> you really don't you want to make something or someone else to star. And that, that's very difficult for a lot of trial attorneys, defense attorneys, because they want to defend their client. And I get that. The problem is you got to understand how the juror brain works. The juror brain, I mean, <laughs> the juror brain is wired so that the, 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 the primacy effect, the, that first information come out of your mouth is going to be the most important. And it's going to be the most paid attention to. And if you just got beat up for 45 minutes in the plaintiff opening, and then you come out defensive, okay, you're on trial. The key is put something or somebody else on trial immediately, immediately, okay? And then you want to end with that at the end of the opening, right? You're going to talk about your client a little bit in the middle of the opening, okay? We're going to attack at the beginning. We're going to attack at the end. And that's the best way to organize your opening statement. I wrote a paper on that. If you want that paper, call me. Or if you want this paper, the four lethal and preventable um, uh, issues in um, um, civil litigation. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Wrote that 16 years ago. I think it still applies. We got some other problems that we've talked about here on the podcast. But, um, but I think that paper still um, rings true. And um I'm happy with that paper. That was the first one. Now we're like 19 down the road. All right, let me end with my rant. Um, first thing I'm going to say is um, congratulations to the uh, University of Kansas. Um, wonderful season. Uh, I sat here on this podcast at the num year number or the uh, number one. Uh, 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 right at the start of the year, our 100th episode. And I sat there and I said, no, I don't think the Tar Heels are going to be able to do it this year. And that what the Tar Heels do, they turn it around, go all the way to the championship game. They got bit by the injury bug in the second half against Kansas. And boy, that, that, that just sucked. But I got to tell you, I didn't shed a tear. I was over it the next day. I'm not upset. And everybody was asking me if I was okay, if I was distraught. Trust me, when we lost to Villanova in 2016, okay, on a buzzer beater in overtime and the guy shot the ball from 30 feet away and hit nothing but the bottom of the net. I, I collapsed to the ground and cried for two hours. I collapsed to the ground and cried for two hours. I was absolutely emotionally devastated. However, this time I wasn't. Why? Because the North Carolina Tar Heels 
accomplish something maybe greater than a national championship and bragging rights forever. They defeated the Duke Blue Devils in round three in the final four in an instant classic, maybe one of the, if not the best college basketball games I have ever watched. Um, yes, I was a raging, raging lunatic during the game. I was pacing, I was screaming, I was kicking furniture. And we just we just pulled it at the end. Caleb Love with a devastating three-pointer with 24.6 seconds left. And Duke could not overcome that. Hit our free throws. And it was, it was, I think that may have been the most important college basketball game in the history of college basketball. And let me, let me end with this. Okay. Cause it was coach K's last game, right? Right. Three, these three strikes ready for this coach K's first loss in his career to the university of North Carolina. The last game he coached in Cameron indoor stadium, roughly a month ago, loss, loss to who university of North Carolina. Third strike, you ready? The last game he coaches in, in the final four, no less. Loss to who? The University of North Carolina. I'm a very proud alumnus. My team will be back next year. Armando Baycott's coming back, preseason top five. And I can't wait. Yeah, I do need some college football coming up here, but what a fantastic season. Started off rough, Tar Heels and strong. And uh, I appreciate you guys putting up with, um, with that wasn't really much of a rant. It was more of a, it was more of a praise. I just want to tell you how freaking happy I am. Freaking ha lost the national championship game by three points, pretty much at the buzzer. And I'm, I'm happy as can be. I'm not on cloud nine. I'm on cloud 10. I am on cloud 10 and we'll wear the Carolina blue strong for the rest of the year. All right, guys, that's it. Thank you so much for participating in another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. We will see you next time. Bye.